0: Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Um, there's no better place to be on the Lord's day than in the Lord's house with the Lord's people, and so I'm glad that you're here. Hope that uh, as you come together and uh, hear the word that God will speak to you this morning through what He has to say, through uh, what the what the what the gospel writer John has given to us. Um, we'll be at uh, at. Speaking of John, we'll be at the end of the fourth chapter, wrapping up the fourth chapter of John this morning. This will be our last time in John for 2021. I'm going to take a few weeks off um, for the Advent Christmas season, and then pick up again after the first of the year. So, wrapping up um, this portion of the gospel. Um, also, wrapping up what is a, a really a literary unit in the in the gospel as well. If, if you are here last week, um, Joe talked about. The chapter 4 being a literary unit in and of itself, he kind of gave us an overview, of a, fly, a flyover in addition to the, to the passage that he preached on last week. Um, but chapter 4 is not just a literary unit in itself, but it's also part of a larger literary unit, as we'll see. Um, it actually, the unit actually began back at the beginning of chapter 2. Um, it's what scholars refer to as an inclusio. You know, it's just a fancy word for for bookends. One commentator I read described it as a as a sandwich. So there's a beginning and there's an end, and the two outsides, the two bookends, refer to one another, or or there there are there are references that are the same in both. If you remember back at the beginning of chapter two, Jesus was in Cana in Galilee. He um, went to a wedding. Uh, they ran out of wine, so he transformed water into wine. And John told us at that point that this was the first sign that Jesus performed. Well, we pick up now at the end of chapter 4, and Jesus is again in Cana in Galilee. We're also going to see his uh, demonstration of his power over natural things, not this time over, over water and wine, but over illness, over sickness. Um, so he's in the same place doing something Similar, um, so there's these two bookends that um, are on both sides here. Um, another theme that we've seen throughout this entire um, inclusio, this entire um, literary unit, is this theme of, of unbelief. If you remember back at the end of chapter 2, where um, we are told that many people believed in Jesus at that point. But we get this sort of subtle reference that says, even though these people believed in Jesus, even though they had some sort of faith, some some fledgling faith perhaps in Jesus, that Jesus did not, on his own part, entrust himself to them. It's as if they believed in him, but he, they believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. There was this confronting of unbelief in sort of a, a passive way, as Jesus was was considering and contemplating what unbelief he was seeing in the hearts of these people. This week, as we look at the end of chapter four, we're going to see that unbelief is also a theme, but here Jesus is going to be much more upfront. He's going to be much more active in his uh, in his um, conf- confrontation with this unbelief. Um, but there are those commonalities that form this these bookends on this unit of uh, of the of the gospel. Um, We also see that Jesus said back in chapter 2 that this was the first sign here. John's going to tell us that this is the second sign that Jesus performed. Now, we know there were many other signs that Jesus performed in the midst of all of this. In fact, that was the thing that made these people at the end of chapter 2 have some sort of faith. They had seen all the signs that Jesus was performing when He was at the feast in Jerusalem. We're not told specifically what those signs were, we're just told that He did many of them and that those caused people to have a belief in Him of a sort. Well, this second sign that we see this morning is one that John identifies as one that has an impact. It actually does lead to faith, even as we saw back in chapter 2 at the beginning when the disciples believed in Jesus because uh, in part of what he was able to do uh, in the sign that he performed there. So that's where we are. To give you a little bit of a context, that's where we'll be looking at this morning at the end of chapter 4 of John. So if you have a Bible, want to grab it open to, the, to John chapter 4, that's where we will be. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the passage where we're going uh, to be concentrating on this morning. Um, Picking up in verse 43, if you would um, honor God's Word by standing, please, if you're able. This is what John writes. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast." this was now the second sign that Jesus did when He had come from Judea in Galilee. This is the Word of the Lord. You can be seated. Father, we, uh, we're grateful for Your Word. And may it be uh, more pres- precious to us. May it be, may it be more desired than, than gold, than, than even much fine gold. May it be sweeter on our lips than honey and the honeycomb. Lord, may Your Word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. All right. Um, Just full disclosure. uh, the outline for this morning, three points, Jesus considers unbelief, Jesus confronts unbelief, Jesus conquers unbelief. Full disclosure, I read this outline in John MacArthur's study Bible. When I, very early on in my preparation for this message, I, I saw this outline, and once I saw it, I couldn't, I couldn't unsee it. I, I, I really tried hard. I endeavored to come up with an outline of my own, but this one just kept coming back to me, and I thought, I don't know that I can do any better. So, with, with, uh, with grateful uh, hearts for, uh, for John MacArthur's work, this is his outline. Um, the rest of it's mostly, mostly me. So, um, In fact, I think I changed the first word. I think he said, Jesus contemplates unbelief, and I said, Jesus considers unbelief. So, yeah, <clears throat> credit where credit is due. All right, let's begin. Uh, chapter 43 begins, I mean, verse 43 begins this way. After the two days... Now, we've got to stop there and wait. What is he talking about? When, G- when John says, after the two days, what two days is he talking about? Well, we just have to back up a few verses. Back in verse 40, we are told that when Jesus, as he made his way from Judea, up, going back up to Galilee, he made his way through Samaria, and he talked to a woman at a well. You, you, you heard this story, right? Yeah, we've been going over this for the last couple of weeks. He met the woman at the well. He had that encounter her, through that encounter, faith was engendered in her. She went back into the town of Sychar and witnessed to the people that were there. They came out to see Jesus. They brought him back into town. Jesus ministered to them. Many of them came to faith. And at that time, he decided he was going to hang around, and he stayed there for two days. So this is, that's the two days that, our, that John is referring to here. It says, after the two days, he departed for Galilee. He's finally completing the trip that he started back in verse 3 as he left Jerusalem and made his way back north towards his home area in Galilee. Then there's this parenthetical statement that, uh, that John makes. It says this, at least it's in parentheses in the ESV. It says, for Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Just sort of an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? Um, it's actually that the, Jesus isn't actually quoted by John saying this in his gospel. But Jesus says this in all three of the other Gospels. In Matthew 13, 57, um, Mark 6, 4, and Luke 4, 24, He says these very words or similar words. And in all cases, He's referring to Nazareth. Jesus inaugurated His ministry in Nazareth, and He was rejected by His people in Nazareth as if, you know, we know this guy. Who does He think He is? And He speaks these words... Uh, to the people of Nazareth. that uh, He says, I I know that a prophet does not have honor in his own hometown. So here John is either quoting from one of those gospels, which I suppose is a possibility. It seems more likely to to me that he was actually there when Jesus said it. So rather than quoting one of the gospels, he's actually giving us an eyewitness account of what Jesus said. But I think here John is applying it a little bit differently. Again, in the other Gospels, it was spoken to the people of Nazareth in response to their rejection of Jesus. Here it begins with this little word, for, which gives us a statement of purpose, tells us why Jesus, or one of the reasons at least, that Jesus is going back to Galilee. And the reason He is going is because a prophet is without honor in his hometown, which to me is a little bit puzzling. Why would Jesus go back to his home country knowing that he was not going to be honored there, knowing that he was not going to be accepted there? In fact, he, he testified that he as a prophet had no honor in his home area. But John tells us he's going there because of that. I, I think the reason that he's going is because he is anticipating the unbelief that is there and he's going to consider it and he's going to confront it. And then at some level, in some, with, with, in, in some specific cases, he's going to conquer that unbelief in the hearts of some, not in the hearts of all. We've seen this kind of idea before, right? You remember back in chapter 1 when, in the prologue when John tells us that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him? I think that's what's going on here. Jesus is just echoing that, that idea that, I know I'm going to my hometown. I'm going back to my home area up there, up in Galilee, but I'm, I'm not going to be honored there. I'm not going to be accepted there. There's not going to be a lot of people there who believe in me, at least, not, at least not fully. Which makes the next verse also a little bit puzzling because it says, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. So how does that go with the idea that he's not honored there? He's not honored in his hometown, but he goes back to his hometown and the people there are welcoming him. Well, John gives us the reason for that as, as well. He says, they welcomed Him because they had seen all that He had done in Jerusalem at the feast, because they had also been at the feast. This is echoes, for me, there are echoes here of what we saw again at the end of chapter two, where there were many people who saw the signs that Jesus did and, and believed in Him in, in some way, as we saw not in a, not in a savingly sufficient way. Because although they believed in Him, He did not believe in them. It's the same thing, I believe, going on here. They're welcoming Him, but, there's, but even the welcome is superficial. And we'll see as we continue through the gospel that the, that the people become less and less welcoming of Jesus to the point where they outright reject Him. And if you know the end of the story, they crucify Him. So that, that's the arc that we're on in this gospel. But for the time being, they're glad to see Him. Because they've been at the Feast and they've seen all these signs that He's done. And so, again, just like the people at the end of chapter 2. In fact, I believe that the people, the many at the end of chapter 2, that these people are some of those many that saw what He was doing at the Feast. So, Jesus is considering here the unbelief of the people. And He's going to Galilee because of it. Then... After he considers considers it, now he's going to confront it, confront it directly. Picking up in verse 46, it says, "So, he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Again, that that idea of the the bookends, the inclusio, relating what we saw at the beginning of chapter two to what we're seeing now, Cana and this miracle of making water wine. And at a, at a <clears throat> and at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So we're introduced to this." new character we have not seen before. He's at Capernaum. Jesus is in Cana. Uh, not entirely sure about the location of Cana, but it, the, the archaeologists and scholars believe it's about 17, 16, 17 miles from Capernaum up to Cana. And I say up to Cana because the Sea of Galilee is below sea level, below the level of the Mediterranean Sea. So to get from Capernaum to Cana, you have to go uphill about, again, about 16 or 17 miles. So this official has made that journey. He's gone from his town of Capernaum and made his way to where Jesus is there in Cana. This word that's translated official is um, the Greek word baskelos. It refers specifically to someone who's in royal service. Um, Scholars are kind of all over the map on who this guy might have been. Some try to identify him specifically with other characters elsewhere in the Gospels. Um, some say he was an official or, or conjecture that he was an official of the Roman government. Seems more likely and the more, more of the consensus of the scholarship is that he would have been an official in the service of Herod Antipas, who was the Jewish leader of that northern region of Galilee. So that's who this guy was. He was, you know, he was in the upper echelon of society. He was uh, in service to the king. And we see him making this journey this uphill journey from Capernaum up to Cana because he has a problem. He has a son who's who's sick. It says at the end of verse 46 that, he, 46 that he was ill. We found out by the end of verse 47 that not only was he sick, but he was so seriously ill that he was at the point of death. And that's why this man has come. Somehow he's heard that Jesus is in Galilee, not only in Galilee, he's heard he's in Cana and he makes the trip there. Again, we're not sure about the origins of this guy. Some, some of the uh, scholars think he may have been a Gentile. They, they relate this story to a story in the other Gospels of a centurion who comes to Jesus pleading for the, for the life of a servant of his. Uh, he would have been a Gentile. Um, it's not entirely clear. It seems to me more likely that if he was in the service of Herod, he would have been Jewish. I think there's even a possibility that this man could have been in Jerusalem for the feast. Had he been an observant Jew, that's where he would have been. He would have been in Jerusalem for the feast. Now, he's made his way home to Capernaum. When he arrives there, he finds out that his son is seriously ill. He may have been one of the many. I tend to think maybe he's just a particularization of the many who saw the signs that Jesus was doing in Jerusalem. It seems to me that that's possible. So, he comes back. He, I got to believe, this is a man, again, he's a royal official. He's in the upper echelons of society, he is going to avail himself or has availed himself of all the medical knowledge that's available at that time. He's done everything, I'm sure. He's seen all the doctors that are available. He's tried all the treatments that are available to try and get his son taken care of, and none of it has worked. And so now, at this point of desperation, he thinks, you know, I remember seeing this or hearing about this this miracle worker, this Jesus. Maybe he can help me. I'm sort of at the end of my rope. I've, I've, I've done everything I can think of. Maybe if I, maybe if I go to this Jesus, maybe he, can, maybe he can help. So he makes the trip. He comes and he, he asks, it says. It says that he came, went to Jesus and asked him to come down and heal his son. I think more accurately, perhaps you could say that he begged. He came before Jesus, and we don't have, we don't have the picture here, but I, I can picture him on his knees before Jesus. His son is desperately ill. He is, he's, if, if there's no intervention, this boy is going to die. And he comes before Jesus and asks him, would you, would you come? Would you, would you help me? Jesus' response is, um, well, on its face value, it's not very compassionate, is it? This man comes begging for his son's life, and Jesus says, you know, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Now, this is one of the issues with reading things in text. One of the reasons I don't like to communicate with text with other people, because if we don't know the face facial expressions and we don't know the tone of voice, we're going to put one on there. So it's possible, I suppose, that Jesus, in sort of exasperation, said... Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I don't think so. That's not my picture of Jesus. I think this is Jesus feeling, feeling compassion, and yet, and yet saying, "I, I I, I, I know that if you are believing in me strictly because of, simply because of what you've seen in signs and wonders, that that's not enough." That's, 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 not, that's not enough to get to have saving faith. It's not believing in me. It's believing in what I've done. It's, 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 it's counting on the signs and, and not me. You know, Jesus, Jesus doesn't intend for his signs to be the end. He intends for his signs to be a means, pointers to him so that people come to him. So they don't stop at the sign, but they move on to him, and I I feel like he's there's there's a not so much an exasperation, but uh, I can almost uh, I can I can sense a um, tearfully Jesus saying. It's not the signs and wonders that are important. Believing just in the signs of wonders isn't enough. Well, the official doesn't. he doesn't want to be distracted by all that. It's almost as if he doesn't hear Jesus, and he says simply, "Sir, come, come with me. Come, come back down to Capernaum with me, before my child dies." This word translated "child" here it, it tells us that this this was probably not a not a young man, but probably just a little boy. You know. I'm a a dad, I I feel the weight of that, coming before Jesus and and desperate, please Jesus, come. If you don't don't come, my little boy is going to die. And that's where where we see the the, the turn of the page, the, the pivot in this text, because Jesus says to him, go, go a simple command, isn't it? He says, go back to your town. Your son will live. Now, it's not recorded here in our text. We're not given insight in the text of what goes through this man's mind at this point. But I have to believe that as he heard this command from Jesus, this man came to a point of crisis. He had to make a decision at that point. Was he going to take Jesus at His word? Jesus said, go? That that wasn't his expectation. He came and asked Jesus to come with him. I I, I think perhaps he, he had observed, as I said, it was possible he was either at the feast or had heard about what Jesus had done at the feast, maybe he even saw Jesus healing Maybe one of these, some of these many signs that Jesus performed were actually healings, and he had seen Jesus go to people and, and speak to them or, or lay his hands on them and and see them, and see them healed, and so that was, I think that was what his expectation was. Jesus, come with me. Let's go back to Capernaum. Come to my house. Come into my son's room where he's lying near death and place your hands on him or pray for him or do something. I, 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 think, I, I think you can heal him. I mean, you've done it before. Maybe you can do this for me. I mean, I, this is just me projecting on this man. That, that these are the things that were going through his head. But I, there's, a, there's another story of, a, of another d- desperate father. This is from, from Mark's gospel. If you remember the story, Jesus and Peter and James and John have been up on the Mount of Transfiguration hanging out with Moses and Elijah. They come back down the mountain, and the, the other disciples have been, been trying really hard to deal with this boy who has an evil spirit that's afflicting him. And Jesus takes some time and, you know, kind of gives His disciples a hard time. And then he, um, he inquires of the Father. This is in verse 21 of chapter 9 of Mark. He asks the Father, how long has this been happening to Him? The Father says, from childhood. It's often cast Him into fire and into water to destroy Him. But, but if you can do anything, if you, if you can do something, have, have compassion on us, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I've um, I've often thought that this is the most honest prayer in Scripture. Uh, This is a man who's reckoning with, with faith and, and, the, and the implication that faith is sometimes not as, sometimes it feels insufficient. I don't know about you, that communicates to me. I've been at times in my, the times in my life where, where I have just known that the faith that I have is not sufficient for the, for the hour, not sufficient for the situation that I'm in, not, for, not sufficient for the challenges that I'm confronting. I'm sure you've been there too. And again, we're not, we don't see it in the text. We're not told that that's what's happening in this man's mind, but I have to believe something like it is happening. Whereas Jesus says, go, it's done. Your son will live. Your request has been granted. Off you go. And he has to make a decision. Now, the way John records it, it, says, it just simply says that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he went on his way. I mean, there are a couple of things here. Um, It says that the man believed, the man had faith, had faith in the word that Jesus spoke. Now, we've seen this before, uh, back in chapter 2, after Jesus uh, turns the water into wine, then He cleanses the temple, and we're told that His disciples believed in Him because of His word. We saw it again in in chapter 4 with the Samaritans, that they believed in Jesus because of His his word. But I... I think there's something a little bit more going on here. I mean, Paul tells us in Romans ten seventeen 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So there's something about this Word, a Word that we still have, that engenders faith, that the faith comes through the hearing of the Word. But I think there's a little bit more going on here. See, the Word here that is translated word is the word logos. And... That's the same word that John uses in his prologue. If you remember back to John chapter 1, when John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he tells us in verse 14 that the Word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This Word, this logos, is standing Before the man. So when it says that, when it says here, when John tells us that the man believed the word, not only, I believe, not only does it say that he's believing in the words, the spoken words that Jesus expressed, but he's believing in Jesus himself. This is this is a different kind of faith than we have seen before. This is a faith that that sees through the sign to Jesus because he hasn't seen the sign yet. He hasn't seen what Jesus is, is going to do, or what Jesus says he's already done. So he goes, it says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke, and he went. And again, there's a, we all know that went is the past tense of the verb go, we, and we understand that, that that's the way English works. In the original, the two words, the word go and the word went look much more similar. I think it would have, if you read it in the original language, it would, it would stick out a little bit more. That when He said, go, the man goed. We don't have that word in English, but it, it, that's the implication. Jesus said, go. He went. Same verb. To me, that, that speaks to the man's obedience. To the degree of faith in which he was stepping out. He, Jesus said, go, and no matter what was going on in his mind, he didn't stop to argue. You know, I, if I put myself in the man's place, if I, if, I, if I walk in his shoes, I feel like I'm going to stop and talk to Jesus just a little bit longer. Because his expectation was that Jesus was going to go with him. That's what he asked him to do. Please come down to Capernaum with me. Please come. That's the way it works, isn't it? You come, you heal. That's the way. So I would have maybe had a little longer discussion. Jesus, don't you want it? Don't you want to come with me? Don't you need to come with me? Can my son get healed if you don't come with me? That's really nice in Capernaum this time of year, down there by the sea. You should come, come with me. We don't see any of that. At least John doesn't record it. He doesn't tell us that the man asked him anything else. Jesus said, go, the man goad. And off he went. To me, that's an amazing thing. It uh, speaks of this of this truth. It's not a biblical, it's not the quote isn't biblical, but the concept is that that believing is is seeing. That believing is seeing. Sometimes we that, that the that the faith precedes that what we actually see as an outcome of our faith. Uh, Augustine said it this way. <clears throat> faith is to believe. What you do not see, the reward of this faith is to see what you believe. Let me say that again. That, that, that's good. You need to hear that twice. Faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what you believe. I think that's what's happening with this man. Or this. This is, um, this is from Martin Luther King, Jr. He said this. He's quoted as saying this. Faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. I would go a little further than that, I think. I think faith is taking the first step when you don't see the second step. Just take step number one, knowing that God has ordained the steps for you to walk in. So, this man goes, and as he goes, we see this, what to me, is just, it's just an evidence of grace. Because it says in verse 51, "...as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering." I say it's an act of grace because, as I said, it was 16, 17 miles. It would have been about a day's journey to get from Cana back down to Capernaum. Again, putting myself in this man's place. He's willing to go because Jesus told him to go, and he's willing to believe that Jesus has healed his son, but i got to believe that entire 16-mile trip going through his mind is this, I believe, help my unbelief thing. I mean, at least least it would be for me. I'm mean, i I, walking along and I'm saying, yes, Jesus, I believe that you did it. I believe that you did it. Did he really do it? I believe that you did it. Did he really do it? And not knowing for sure, for sure, for sure, until he got home. And God in His grace ordains that he doesn't have to wait the whole time. You know, he had some compassionate servants, some servants that, that cared about him and about his son. And when they saw... Miraculous healing. I try to imagine what that experience would have been like. We don't get that glimpse either. One moment they're ministering to this sick unto the point of death child, and the next moment, at the word of Jesus, he's instantaneously healed. He jumps out of his bed. He's running around having a great time. I don't. We don't. We don't get to see that either. But I can picture it. And so they, with the great news that that the son the son is well, they they. They, you know, saddle up their horses or whatever, get on their donkeys, and they head off towards Cana because they want to tell him. They have good news to tell this man that they work for. So off they go, and somewhere in the middle, they meet. And so the man's anxiety, whatever, re- whatever remaining anxiety he had, whatever, uh, whatever lingering unbelief he was still dealing with, gets dealt with just a little bit sooner. To me, that's, that's a grace. That's a grace. And we see, we see he's still, he's still not, quite, not quite 100% convinced, we see that in verse 52, it says, so he asked them the hour when it began to get better, just to be sure, just to be sure, he wanted to, wanted to rule out the possibility that this might have been just a coincidence, that maybe whatever this son had wasn't. Fatal. Maybe he wasn't at the point of death, and he had a serious fever, but about the time, you know, I'm making my way up to Cana, about the same time, the the fever broke, and he was feeling better. So, he wants to nail this thing down. So, he says, so when did this happen exactly? And they told him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him, and that's when he knew. The father knew, that was the hour when Jesus said, your son will live. It takes it out of the realm of possible coincidence and turns it into a sure cause and effect. It was Jesus' words that caused the healing of his son. And then this begs this begged a question for me because it says here, um, end of verse fifty-three, that when he knew that, he himself believed. He himself believed in that moment, but we were told back in verse 50 that he believed then, right? It said he believed the word that Jesus said, and that's why he went. So which is it? Did he believe when Jesus spoke and told him to go, or did he believe, or, or did he believe when he got home and, and saw that his son was well, or did he believe when, when his servants told him he was okay? And then when did the, when did the believing happen? Well, I think it happened all through that entire continuum, that there was this initial spark of faith back in verse 50, Jesus says, go, something in the man, well, something external to the man, spoke to the man and said, you know what, I can, I can believe this, that something is the Holy Spirit, That's someone, the Holy Spirit, and so He went, but lingering doubts. Help my! I believe, help my unbelief. I'm, I'm making my way back. The servants say, hey, he's okay. When did it happen? It happened at this time. That must have been Jesus. That's when Jesus said it was going to happen. And he gets home, and his son is, is fine. His son is fine, and he himself believed. See, I think the point here is that, that although saving faith happens in a moment, Although the new birth happens in a moment, coming to faith can be more more incremental, if you will. The steps that lead us to faith can be more incremental. And somewhere in that continuum, and I can't can't point to where, where his fledgling faith, this, this brand new just birth faith, where it takes root. But somewhere in in this continuum, it, it happened. One commentator I read put it this way, he said, the royal official progressed through three stages of engagement with Jesus, from hearing that Jesus had arrived in Galilee in verse 47, and presumably about His ability to perform miracles, to being prepared to act on Jesus' word alone in verse 50. And finally, to becoming one who with his whole household believed. In verse 53, presumably that Jesus was the Messiah. This illustrates the stages in coming to faith through which people may pass, knowing about Jesus, trusting in His Word, and experiencing His grace. I think we see this in in this progression that this official goes through. You know, I believe that when we get to the end of the story, he does have true saving faith that that this man, this Jesus, is is the Messiah. It says that he believed and in, in his, his whole household believed, another, another another evidence of grace. Not only did the man believe, but his wife believed and his son believed and any other children they had believed. I think even these, these servants who joyfully came halfway to Cana to tell them about this good news. I think... All of them believed they were part of the household. There was this this wholesale coming to faith in this household because of this man's response to Jesus. So that's the good news, isn't it? That Jesus, as as He considers unbelief and goes back to His hometown because of it, because He has a divine appointment with this man, and He confronts the unbelief, I forgot to mention this, by the way. When he says, unless you see signs and wonders and will not believe, he says it to him, but the yous in that verse are all plural. So he wasn't just speaking to the man, he was speaking to everyone. Uh, by, by extension, he was speaking to all the people in Galilee, I think. All of those people who wouldn't believe in him or believed in him somewhat because of the signs he had performed. He was, that, that, that rebuke was addressed to all of them. And the reality is that um, if you look at the arc of the gospel of John, that this man's response is the exception rather than the rule. That not many came to faith in Jesus. Not many came to true saving faith in Jesus. There were many who believed in the signs that he was doing and thought he was a great miracle worker or maybe a great teacher, you know, the kind of things that people say about him today. But you know, not Messiah, not Savior. Certainly not, certainly not Lord. And as we as we get towards the end of the book, um, from we get to chapter, we'll get to the chapter twelve someday. Um, but when we get to chapter twelve, as Jesus is is getting towards the end of his of his public ministry, and the cross is near. John makes this very sobering statement. This is verse 37 of chapter 12. Though he, though Jesus had done so many signs, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. All the signs that, that John identifies and then the other many signs that he chooses not to identify specifically now, remember, he tells us in his purpose statement that he, he's collected the signs and, and told us about them so that we might believe, and that by, and then believing we would have life in his name. That's the purpose for which John wrote this gospel. And yet, not many believed. In fact, we can get to the end, very few believed. This is, um, this is from uh, a commentary by a gentleman named... Andreas Kostenberger, he's written extensively on the Gospels and the other writings of John. Um, He makes this statement. This is in in response to that verse I just read from chapter 12. He said, What this makes clear is that signs by themselves are an insufficient basis for faith. Likewise, we should not think today that we will be able to reason anyone into the kingdom merely by skillful persuasion. This is not to discourage our evangelistic efforts, it rather challenges us to put our trust in God, not ourselves, as we seek to lead others to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rational arguments and a presentation for the evidence of the historicity of Christ's resurrection, for example, have their place, but they will not succeed unless faith is engendered by the work of the Holy Spirit. As Paul indicates, even faith is ultimately a gracious gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And accordingly, Paul's own preaching was carried out, not in reliance on sophisticated rhetoric or persuasive powers, but with spiritual conviction and a demonstration of the power of God. That's 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. So I want to leave you with this. This is, um, it, is it is Advent season. We're on, I think this is Sunday number three. Um, Christmas is right around the corner. I've been reading this, uh, this little book called Good News of Great Joy. It's Advent devotionals, one for each day of Advent leading up to Christmas. Um, this is from, from John Piper. And this past week, um, it was this past week, yeah. Day six, he wrote this. The uh, title of this little devotional is peace, peace to Those with Whom God is Pleased. And he begins by quoting from Luke chapter 2 with the, um, the announcement of the angels to the shepherds. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And Piper writes, peace for whom? There's a somber note sounded, so, There's a somber note sounded in the angel's praise. Peace among those on whom His favor rests. Peace among those with whom He is pleased. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6 So, Christmas does not bring peace to all. This is the judgment, Jesus said. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 3.19 or, as the aged Simeon said when he saw the child Jesus, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. That's Luke 2, 34-35. Oh, how many there are who look out on a bleak and chilly Christmas Day and see no more than that, a sign to be opposed. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, John 1, 11 through 12. It, is, it was only to his disciples that Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid, John 14:27. The people who enjoy the peace of God that surpasses all understanding are those who in everything, by prayer and supplication, let their requests be made known to God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. The key that unlocks the treasure chest of God's peace is faith. Faith in the promises of God. So Paul prays, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Romans 15, 13. And when we do trust the promises of God and have joy and peace and love, then God is glorified. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Everyone from every people, tongue, tribe, and nation who would believe. Father, my prayer for each one of us here is that we have come to a saving faith, that we do believe. But I know we would all acknowledge, but there are times when we struggle, where the prayer, where the, where the cry of our hearts is, help, help my unbelief, strengthen my faith, make it, make it stronger, make it, make it deeper, make it, make it broader. So Lord, my prayer for each one of us here this morning, in this Advent season, that we, we would see, see Jesus and who He is and what He has accomplished on our behalf and that we, that we would believe, and that believing we would have life in His name. Lord, we pray this in His name.